what should be the disposition of the worshiper on Good Friday? Are we to be somber or celebratory? We know that on Good Friday, the spotlight is on the cross, whereas on Easter Sunday, we focus on the resurrection. So we recognize this distinction. However, as Christians, we know that these two great events in human history cannot be broken apart. They must always be held together. As we celebrate one, we recognize that it is infused with the other. So whatever combination there is tonight in each of our hearts of somberness and celebration, and probably it differs from person to person, and that's okay, whatever combination there is of those things, my prayer for us is that our disposition will be one of awe, immense awe, awe of God's glory, awe of God's name. This past Sunday, in our normal uh, rhythm of, uh, of preaching through Exodus, we looked at the third commandment, and the third commandment deals with honoring God's name. We talked about how Jesus Christ is the name of God par excellence. Jesus manifests God's name. In the incarnation of the Son of God, God's name is enfleshed. He is the clearest expression of God's name, His essence, His character and attributes. He is God with us in human flesh, shining in all of His glory. But to be more specific... What we find in John chapter 12, verses 27 to 33, is that the name of God is glorified at the cross. It is in the death of Jesus that we get the loudest, clearest, brightest, and most glorious declaration of God's holy name. And so the title for The sermon, or sermonette, whatever you want to call it, the title for tonight's talk is Glory at the Cross. And if you would stand with me, we're going to read John chapter 12, verses 27 to 33 together. John 12, verses 27 to 33, Glory at the Cross. This is Jesus speaking. Now... Is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death 
he was going to die. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask that God would be glorified through this focus on the cross. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your people. And the fact that each of us here tonight is a part of the body of Christ, that we're part of your people, Lord. And at the same time, we recognize that corporately speaking, we, we consider that there may be those among us, whether it is our children or visitors or friends or family, among us tonight who are not Christians, truly believers in Christ, followers, disciples of Jesus. Lord, we pray for their conversion tonight. We ask that you would mercifully save, and we pray that you would build us all up in this holy, holy time of consideration of the death of our Savior. Father, we pray that Jesus would shine brightly this evening, Father, and that we would bow before him and trust him with all of our lives, that we would surrender all that we have and are to this holy, loving, majestic Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> so with a view to his impending death, in anticipation of the cross, Jesus here says these words, Father, glorify your name. So what I want to do tonight is briefly look at four ways that God's name is glorified at the cross. What we're being told here is the cross is looming as Jesus is moving towards the cross. He has just raised Lazarus. We have there the triumphal entry. Uh, the cross is there in the near future. And what we're meant to understand here is that the cross is where God's name is glorified. So what I want to do is briefly look at four ways that God's name is glorified at the cross. And we see these here. So we see matchless love at the cross, moral perfection, mighty victory, and manifold harvest. So that's what we're going to spend our time looking at this evening. So first, matchless love. Verse 27 begins with the weight of the cross as Jesus prays to the Father. Verse 27, just those opening words there, now is my soul troubled. This word troubled means to have inner turmoil, to be stirred up, disturbed or unsettled. Used in this particular context, it is a very strong word. For a visual, in John chapter 5, verse 7, it is used of water being stirred up. So when I read this, I think of water in a pot on the stove. You think of maybe when you're going to boil eggs and you fill up a pot and you put it on the stove. You turn on the eye, and before too long, the water begins to boil as it is stirred up by the heat. And what was once quiet and calm is now moving with intensity. It goes from being entirely still to being filled with motion. This is the soul of Christ. This is the soul of Christ as he faces the cross, as he looks into the near future and sees the cross. 
Here we are getting a window into the heart of our Savior. He is about to suffer a torturous death, but even more, he is about to die for the sins of others. Not for his own sins, because Christ was perfect and sinless. We'll talk about that a little more in a moment, but he never sinned. He was about to die for the sins of all of us who would believe in him, to be treated as though he were the vilest sinner who ever lived, as though he were Heinrich Himmler or Adolf Hitler or Charles Manson or whoever else. He is about to bear the fierce wrath of Almighty God. He is about to be underneath the judgment of God. As God the Son enfleshed. And so here, even before we get to the crucifixion itself, we see the great cost of the cross. We are not meant to merely think of the cost of the cross in terms of what happens at the cross. We're also meant to see here what is happening in the soul of Christ as the cross is near. As the cross is coming. This is what the Father gave His Son up to suffer. This turmoil of the soul. This suffering in the body. And this bearing of wrath. The the story of Abraham and Isaac is nothing. It pales in comparison. It is a little picture. This is the reality. This is the true event that the sacrifice of Isaac, which never happened, by the way, was meant to depict. This is what the Son willingly embraced in order to save us. Jesus was not dragged kicking and screaming by the Father to the cross. He willingly, as the good shepherd, gave his life up for the sheep. He willingly embraced this soul turmoil and physical suffering and wrath-bearing To save us. This is the name of God. Matchless. Boundless. Incomprehensible love. As Christ. Willingly moves into the most awful suffering imaginable. On our behalf. So we see matchless love. God's name displayed at the cross and his matchless love. Secondly, we see moral perfection. What is Christ's response to this suffering? What is Christ's response to this stirring up of his soul? Look at verses 27 to 28. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Does the Son of God turn away from the Father's will? Does he go for the crown without the cross, as Satan tempted him to do. And that's one of the things that we are meant to understand about the temptation of Jesus. That he's tempted to lay hold of a crown 
tempted to take hold of his kingship, his rightful rule as the son of David, without the cross. That's Satan's temptation to Jesus. And as we read here, the answer to both of those questions is emphatically no. Instead, what we see is an embrace, an embrace of the horrors of the cross, a willingness to drink this awful cup, a recognition that this is why he came. This is my reason for being here. This is why I am even here in this moment. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. There we read the angel telling Joseph in the dream that he will name his son Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And how will Jesus save his people from their sins? Matthew chapter 20, verse 27 tells us, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came, was to die as a ransom, to die as a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of his people, just like so many lambs, so many bulls, so many calves, and so on and so forth, dying in the sacrificial system in the history of Israel, all pointing to Christ. He is the Lamb of God. He's the sacrifice. He's the ransom. And as we think about the name of God, the glory of God, the character of God, we think about God's law, which we're looking at right now, the summary of God's law in the Ten Commandments. And we recognize that God's law is an expression of who he is. It reveals his character. It puts forth his name. And what we see here in these words of Christ is perfect law keeping. We're meant to understand that as Jesus, even in these verses, right, you, when you think of Jesus as perfect law keeping, your mind may go to a whole host of places. But what we see is all of that in a nutshell here in these verses. Perfect law keeping, perfect obedience, perfect submission to the Father. What we are witnessing here in the lead up to the cross and ultimately at the cross is moral perfection on display. If we are to regard the Ten Commandments as a summary of God's moral law, we're meant to understand that here in this moment, in this moment of perfect obedience and submission, Christ is displaying, putting on display the perfection of the law incarnate. Jesus is lovingly submitting to the Father with his whole person. This is 100% surrender. This is the shining fulfillment of the law in the person of Jesus Christ. And here the Father's voice from heaven affirms that he is fully pleased with his Son. We get the voice of the Father coming over the Son in three places at the baptism, at the transfiguration, and here. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf. We can't come to Good Friday without the gravity of that great truth is that we break the law. We are law breakers by nature. We are sinners. We are children of Adam. We are rebellious against God. Even as Christians, 
We sin. We rebel against God. We walk in the way of the flesh. We are conformed to this world. We neglect to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We do not present our members to God as instruments for righteousness, but present our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Jesus did none of that. He perfectly obeyed God's law. Moral perfection on display. And here, in his willingness, in his submission. And consider this, tonight it is only through Christ that the name of God will be displayed through our obedience. God's name put on display in the obedience of the Son to the Father. And it is only through Christ that that's going to happen in our lives. We need strength and courage to look great suffering in the face. To look in the eyes of great suffering and to say, Father... Not my will, but yours be done. As Jesus prayed in Gethsemane to say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, John 4, 34. We need Christ for that. We don't think like that. We don't talk like that. We don't feel like that naturally. Christ did and he does in us. Christ's power in us stares down suffering and obeys God, trusts God, seeks God, lays hold of God. So we see moral perfection in the suffering of Christ at the cross. We see the name of God on display. Next, we come to the mighty victory. Look at verses 29 to 31. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This voice from heaven gives Jesus the opportunity to explain what's coming, to unpack the meaning and effect of this impending death on the cross. Now we have seen in Exodus how God's Defeat of his enemies puts forth his glory. We've talked about that as, we, as we've watched the Lord work in the book of Exodus. How God's glory is put on display as he defeats his enemies. It proclaims his holy name. It shows forth his omnipotent essence. We saw this, I think, in a glorious way at the Red Sea where God glorified himself through defeating the enemies of his people, where he victoriously judged evil. And that is exactly what we find here. At the cross, God secures a mighty victory over Satan and over the course of this world. If it looked as though Satan 
was winning. And there was no victory for God's people. All of that false understanding is blown away and shattered at the cross. Satan and all his devices have been crushed at the cross. Where the Son of God places his foot on Satan's head by paying the penalty for his people's sin. Isn't that the irony of the cross? The wonder of the cross that there is Jesus hanging, bleeding, dying, nailed from the world's vantage point, utterly helpless and vulnerable, like a lamb just led bound to the slaughter. And yet there he is, the conquering king. It is as his feet are nailed to the cross that his foot is crushing Satan. That Genesis 3.15 is being fulfilled. What appeared to be Jesus' defeat was actually his victory. And we read this in several places, but Colossians 2 Verses 14 to 15 says that he canceled Christ on the cross. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You can imagine the image of an army of demons, an army of evil spirits. Satan himself all of a sudden being disarmed, stripped of all their armor, stripped of all their weapons, of all their fiery darts and devices at the cross. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Listen to this. In order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus on the cross is displaying the name of God in that he is showing God's glorious victory. He is showing this mighty victory. As we finish up this evening, we come to the manifold harvest. We see manifold harvest at the cross. We see the glory of God's name. Look at verses 32 to 33. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Here Jesus refers to his manner of death, and it is crucifixion. His being lifted up on a cross, and it is through the cross that he draws all kinds of people to himself. He draws Jews and Gentiles, those near and those far off, those living in the first century, and those of us living today, In the 21st, this is the glorification of God's name through the salvation of sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is the ingathering of all the peoples as God promised to Abraham that through your offspring, through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the glorification of God's name through the salvation 
of sinners. And it brings us back to John chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, where Jesus says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that whoever looks to this one who's been lifted up, just as in Numbers when the people rebel against God and God sends serpents and then, and then the people are being afflicted with serpents, they're being killed and, and God instructs Moses to construct a bronze serpent to lift it up and all who looked at this lifted up bronze serpent on a pole would be healed as a picture of Christ. That all who, looks, all who look at the one who's been lifted up on the cross will be healed. Our diseases and ailments in this life are nothing. We need to be healed from sin and death, from condemnation, from judgment, from facing the fierce wrath of Almighty God. It is only by looking to this Christ that we can have eternal life. Have you believed in this one? Really believed in him? Put your trust in him. Turned away from trusting in yourself. Turned away from trusting in all the idols of this world, all the things you just need to get and hug and love and have. Not God's. And they will not save you. But this Christ will. This Christ can He is our only hope. Just before this passage, some Greeks came to Jesus. This is an interesting passage here. Right before this portion that we're reading, some Greeks just come. They're they're God-fearers. They're Gentiles. They're worshiping at the feast, the Passover time. They're there, but they're Greeks. And they go to Philip in verse 20 saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, who doesn't? At this point, right? So many people wish to see Jesus, but these Greeks want to see him. And when the disciples report this to him, he gives a little speech in which he says this in verse 24. Listen closely to these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is what is happening in the death of Jesus. What a beautiful illustration he is Jesus is like a little grain of wheat planted in the earth whose death results in an abundant harvest it is through the death of Christ that the great harvest comes in he must die so that many will live he had to die so that we would live if Christ would not have died we would all spend eternity in hell every single one of us in this room where the worm does not die, outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, separation from God. That would be the lot of all of us if it were not for this grain of wheat having died. And it is in this abundant harvest of saved sinners like us that God's holy name is glorified. We see God's name shining bright. We see his character on display. We see his attributes before our eyes as we consider the ingathering of the peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation through this lifted up Christ, this manifold harvest 
of blood-bought sinners. So in all of our somberness and celebration this weekend, may we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. May we hear, proclaim, and put all of our trust in God's holy name. May we honor his name. May we pray into his name and put all of our trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the suffering of our Savior. We thank you for his soul suffering, his anguish of heart, his physical torture, and what is unimaginably beyond our understanding, his bearing of your wrath. Father, we thank you and we praise you that this Christ is no longer on the cross, but he reigns and he will never be crucified again. And he will never be spit upon again. And no one will pluck his beard out again. For he is the Lord. The King of kings. And all will bow. Before his glorious majesty. We praise him. Amen. If you would please go ahead and stand.